Why do we do the things we do? You were born into a ready-made world. You did not make anything that is around you in the way of art, literature, science, music, customs, habits, traditions. You did not originate or create any of the customs that you observe. When you were a little child and you wondered at the red pumpkins and the witch costumes and the weird things that you saw around Halloween, or perhaps someone was ducking or bobbing for apples, and you said, Daddy, what is that? Or, Mommy, what are they doing? Well, this is Halloween, the parents would say. Apply the same thing to Christmas. When a little child is bedazzled from the time of babyhood with the very beautiful lights of a Christmas tree and from the time of their earliest memory from one year, two years, three years, hearing all of the Christmas carols and smelling all of the odors, realizing that it's a time of gaiety, of family reunions, of people sitting around for a Christmas goose or turkey, of an exchanging of gifts. And when a parent will come to a little child waving some bright bauble, some wonderful little thing, or perhaps at age two or three or four they get a little red wagon, and then the next year a little tricycle all wrapped in cellophane beside or near the Christmas tree, it's a very subtle and yet a very determined and a very positive process that parents use to teach young people about the traditions of this society that were already in place and that were ready-made. Now, how ancient are they? Are they American? Are they even Protestant? From what source does something like, let's say, Halloween really come? And what do you know about Halloween? Do you know that if most people were asked to write down the name, they wouldn't even know how to write it? They would write it as one word because that's becoming common in journalism these days, in newspapers and the like. They just write the word Halloween. But do you know that the second E has an apostrophe? Because it really is the short form of hallowed evening or all hallows eve. I well remember asking a group of youngsters who were out trick-or-treating, and I had, in order to preserve my home, gotten a box of apples. I didn't want to give them junk or sugar or something that was bad for them, so I'd gotten a box of apples, and I put the box of apples right near the front door. And here came a whole group of witches, goblins, trolls, poltergeists, demons, devils. Maybe one of them had a, even had a weird Nixon uh, face mask of some kind. But here they were, long and short, fat and skinny. I mean, a whole group of them. There must have been seven, eight, or ten of them standing on my porch. And I had a standard question I was going to ask them, and frankly, I did so deliberately for the purpose of being able to speak on radio and television and to give sermons on the subject, because I was pretty sure what I would find. But one little fellow really surprised me just a little bit. I said, all right, now, you can have an apple, but would you do me a favor? I want to ask you just one question, and then you get the apples. What is the meaning of Halloween? Can any, can any one of you tell me the meaning of Halloween? Well, there was a lot of shuffling of feet and a kind of digging of hands into pockets, and they looked this way and that. The little girls giggled, and I think some of them said, Well, it's for the kids. It, it, we're just having fun. And, well, it's, it's the night to go trick-or-treating. I said, No, 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 I, I know all of that. I, I mean, what is the origin of it? Where did it come from? A little boy standing there said, he brightened up. He said, I know. He said, it's the day when Columbus discovered America. Now, that really showed me just how much most people know about Halloween. Now, what about you? 
there are many customs you have been brought up just casually taking for granted. For example, now that I am speaking to you in a particular month, it's called October, did you know that the prefixes attached to our months commencing just after August, sept for September, oct for October, nov, N-O-V for November, and dis or D-E-C for December, mean successively, successively, September, October, November, December, mean 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. But how did that come to be? Because we know that July is the seventh month, right? But September is the ninth month. Then why call it the seventh month? Well, we owe it to old Julius Caesar, who named the month of the calendar after himself. And then, of course, Augustus Caesar, not to be outdone, because Julius had decided that his month that bore his name had to be a full month of 31 days. Augustus, in his conceit and his vanity, decided... My month is going to have 31 days as well, because I'm not going to come behind Julius. So he just stole one from poor little February, because February isn't named after any of the ancient Caesars. But now, I imagine you didn't know that. And you probably have never really thought of the fact that October really means eighth month. But it's not the eighth month, is it? No, it's the tenth. And November means... The ninth month, but it's the eleventh, and December means the tenth month, but it's the twelfth. Now, why is that? Of course, January is named after Janus, a pagan uh, concept of a god. And then we know that Juno is supposed to be a goddess, and that's why, and because she's the goddess, like Isis, of sex and fertility and procreation, we've heard all of our lives of June weddings and of June brides. And there are other names that are given not only to the days of the week and all of the seasons of the year, but the very months themselves to pagan concepts of pagan gods. Now, believe it or not, Halloween is no different. But I have a question for all of you Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, anybody who is not a Catholic. Why are you observing a Catholic ceremony, one of the Catholic masses, in honor of Catholic saints, which was adapted by the Roman Catholic Church of Ireland, which merely put into a tuxedo and dressed up a rotten, heinous, pagan worship of Satan the devil and belief in Sam Hain, the lord of evil spirits, and twisted it all around and gave it a nice wrapping and gave it a kind of a seasonal gaiety and called it a Christian holiday. Now, here's something else you've probably never done. I have opened before me here the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's a fairly short article, so I'll just read to you right quickly what it says about the origin of Halloween. I'm reading now from page 857 of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Halloween, or All Hallows' Eve, the name given to the 31st of October as the Vigil of Hallowmass, or All Saints' Day though now known as little else but the eve of the Christian festival. Halloween and its formerly attendant ceremonies long antedate Christianity. That means they were in place long before anyone ever heard of the religion called Christianity, that they go way back into ancient paganism. It goes on to say, the two chief characteristics of ancient Halloween, and that's H-A-L-L-O-W-E apostrophe E-N, meaning the evening before the day of all hallows or all saints. You see, the ancient Hebrew calendar 
celebrated the beginning of each day with sunset. Not at the middle of a dead night, nor did the year begin in the middle of a dead winter. The year began in the spring when brand new things were coming and being in the bud and grass and leaves were beginning to show forth and so on. And that is the way God originally set it. But the pagans decided that it should begin in the middle of a dead winter and that the new day should begin in the middle of a dead night at midnight. But anciently it really began at the evening. And the Druids knew that. And so actually, though November 1st was the day being celebrated, because on sunset of October 31st, November 1st really began, that was when the great celebration took place, because technically it was on November 1st. Now today in our calendar, people think that Halloween is on the 31st of October, but really it is not. The two chief characteristics, they said, of ancient Halloween were the lighting of bonfires and the belief that of all nights in the year this was the one during which ghosts and witches were most likely to wander abroad. Now on or about the 1st of November, the Druids held their great autumn festival and lighted fires in honor of the sun god in thanksgiving for the harvest. So it was a harvest thanksgiving, and that connotes the idea of the worship of Pomona where the Romans in Rome were doing something of the very same order on the very same day. But Pomona was supposed to be the goddess of the harvest. So it was a harvest festival, which is why you see some of the accoutrements of Halloween will be shocks of corn and ears of corn and pumpkins and squashes and nuts and all kinds of edibles, apples and so on, and that a lot of the festivities revolve around those very things. So it says that on or about the 1st of November, the Druids held their great autumn festival and lighted fires in honor of the sun god in thanksgiving for the harvest. Further, it was a Druidic belief that on the eve of this festival, Salmon, or sometimes he was called Shaman, or Shamus, or Samhain, Lord of Death, and that is nothing more than their concept of Satan the devil, called together the wicked souls that within the past twelve months have been condemned to inhabit the bodies of animals. Thus it is clear that the main celebrations of Halloween were purely druidical, and this is further proved by the fact that in parts of Ireland the 31st of October was and still is known as Oidich Shamna, or Vigil of Salmon. On the druidic ceremonies were grafted some of the characteristics of the Roman festival in honor of Pomona, held about the 1st of November, in which nuts and apples, as representing the winter store of fruits, played an important part. Thus the roasting of nuts and the sport known as apple-ducking attempting to seize with the teeth an apple floating in a tub of water, were once the universal occupation of the young folk in medieval England on the 31st of October. The custom of lighting Halloween fires survived until recent years in the highlands of Scotland and Wales. In the dying embers, it was usual to place as many small stones as there were persons around, and then next morning a search was made. If any of the pebbles were displaced, it was regarded as certain that the person represented would die within the next 12 months. That's the end of the brief article in the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica on the subject of Halloween. Now, you probably learned in the reciting of that brief article all kinds of things you never knew before. Why is that? Why didn't you know that before? Why isn't that preached out of the pulpits? Now, when I was a child, I was subject to just as much peer pressure as you are. And I wanted, with all of my heart and being, to observe Halloween. For one thing, it was the one day of the year when a little kid could be outside 
with a bar of soap in your hip pocket and with license to do mayhem and evil around the neighborhood. It was permissiveness on a grand scale to take a shopping bag and to go raiding the neighborhood. I mean, where in the world else would you ever get that kind of, of loot? You know, back in, when I grew up in the Depression, the later part of the Depression, a penny would buy you a licorice whip or a candy bar. You can't get anything for a penny. Most people won't even stoop to pick one up anymore. But, you know, it took a lot of money to go buy a candy bar, and you would work long and hard. I remember working for a nickel an hour, the very first job I ever had. So, you know, if you could go around a neighborhood with a shopping bag and get yourself really a treasure trove of 18 or 20 candy bars and apples and all kinds of things, licorice whips and who knows whatever, and including fruits and nuts and so on, and all you had to do was to threaten the lady that came to the door by saying trick or treat, meaning either give me something or I'm going to soap your windows or turn over the outhouse or do something even more horrible, like maybe tie the cow to the door, knock at the door, you open the door and the cow walks inside. And we used to hear of people throwing rotten tomatoes and rotten, rotten apples and turning over garbage cans and literally turning over outhouses. And some youngsters in rural areas used to brag about the terrible things they would do on Halloween. Now, that was a wretched thing to do. It cost some poor family a lot of money and a lot of very odorous pain to have to go through the process of erecting a new outhouse. And yet kids would get together and actually laugh about it and brag about it. So you have to ask, well, what is good about Halloween? Featured in Halloween are the jick or jack or joker of the lantern, wherein a pumpkin is hollowed out, the seeds thrown away, and a weird-looking face cut into the pumpkin, which is then destroyed and never eaten, and instead of growing on the vine to provide food for the hungry, it now becomes a kind of a demon's head. Then it's set in a window with a candle lit, and that's supposed to frighten away the evil spirits. And what about witches that are supposed to be abroad and black cats? Well, you can go to your various department stores and to the drug stores and the stores where you trade for food and whatnot, and you're going to see all kinds of yellow and black crepe paper and black witches riding on broomsticks silhouetted against a big orange moon. And you will see that even in the basements of churches, there are all kinds of parties going on at Halloween. It's treated as if it is humorous, quaint, folksy, some kind of a capricious tale from mythology, and people just love to do it. They love to fall into line and just do it. So they teach their children, oh, this is Halloween, son. This is Halloween. And everybody does it. It's a lot of fun. A couple of years ago, I was up in Colorado, and usually at that time of the year, I'm about to go hunting. And I happen to be staying overnight in the Holiday Inn in Craig, Colorado. And in their dining room and lounge, they had a gigantic Halloween party. And people were wandering in there wrapped completely from head to foot in gauze and plaster Paris, looking just like a mummy. Others were wearing skeletal costumes. Some were wearing practically nothing at all. A lot of the women wanted to look like a bunny. They had on a, I guess, just nothing but a body stocking, pantyhose, and a little kind of a cotton ball fluffed up and tied to their rear end, and some big ears pinned on, and some cats or some rabbit's whiskers painted on their face with grease paint, and that was their costume. And there were people dressed in the most grotesque masks you've ever seen. I guess it's fun to hide out. You know, it's fun to be at a party, to be milling around among people, and no one knows who you are. That way you can act like the biggest jackass the world has ever known. You can act capricious. You can say the riotous, most riotous things you want to. You can drink and uh, get drunk and so on, and it's all just licentiousness. 
Now today, Halloween is party time for literally tens of millions of Americans who will be going to neighborhood lounges, restaurants, and bars. There will be private neighborhood parties, and there will be plenty of parties taking place inside of churches. A little while ago I was telling you, I once bobbed for apples, or ducked for apples. I remember it so well, and believe it or not, it was in the basement of a well-known church in Eugene, Oregon. Now, I didn't belong to that church. My parents knew better than to celebrate Halloween. But I would manage to either sneak out or get some permission from my mother to go out for a little while, and I would take a little dried-up part of a bar of soap out of the bathroom without her knowing about it, and off I would go to raid the neighborhood. Well, on this one night, I went a little further away than that, and the idea was that I guess you won a prize or something. There were two ways of doing it. One was really ridiculous. They would tie the apple in some way or another, I guess by its stem, to a string and simply pin it to the ceiling. And you walked up with your hands behind you and tried to take a bite out of it. Well, the only way to do it is to get it swinging and then really sink your teeth in it when it comes back, and sometimes it'll hit you in the, in the lip and give you a fat lip. Well, the other way is to nearly drown yourself by trying to pin the apple against the side of a tub with your hands tied behind you and actually take a bite out of the apple. And the first kid succeeding in doing that wins some kind of a prize. And I was doing this in a church basement. Now, my question is, what is wrong with Halloween? And the answer is obvious. If there is no God, nothing. No, if there's no God, then nothing is wrong with Halloween, because if there is no God, there isn't anything that is really wrong except what society says is wrong and what your neighbors really get upset about or what the courts and the police departments say is wrong and you shouldn't do. Then it's up for people to make up their own mores and statutes, codes, and laws. But if there is a God, and there is, and you can absolutely prove it, and there are many, many proofs, proofs by the thousands, but seven overall proofs, each one of which would require an encyclopedic set of books to really expound. Life only comes from a life giver. Law only comes from a great law giver. The sustaining of the universe requires a sustainer. Creation itself, the vastness of the universe, requires a creator. And there are several more, including fulfilled prophecy and answered prayer. There are plenty of proofs that Almighty God does exist. But furthermore, there are plenty of proofs that the archdemon who is the exact opposite of Almighty God, who is called Satan the devil, also does exist. And the Bible has a very great deal to say about Satan the devil. Now, many treat the entire subject of the existence of a devil as sort of quaint and folksy. And who hasn't seen a weird costume at Halloween time with wicked-looking horns, red body stocking, a long pointed tail, and a pitchfork? And who doesn't recall people referring to a naughty child as you little devil or you little demon or you little booger or somebody eating devil's food cake or seeing some geologic phenomena referred to as the devil's punch bowl. I know there's a mountain up in Wyoming where a huge pinnacle of rock looking like a basaltic upthrust is completely isolated on a plain and there are talus or detritus slopes all the way around it, but here's this one gigantic pinnacle of rock just sticking up out there where it just doesn't seem to belong. So sure enough, it's the devil's pinnacle. Seems like it can never be God's, or it can never be Christ's, or it can't be an angel's pinnacle. It's got to be the devil's. I remember over in the Oregon seacoast, there was an area where the waves had eroded a portion of a cliff, and a little hole had gradually, like a fumarole, had gradually gotten larger and larger. So as the waves would come up on high tide, and they would come roaring in in this cave that had been formed, 
there was a hole that actually came up into the rocks near your feet, and you could stand nearby, and it would just make this booming noise, and as the huge wave surged in there, it would just cause spray to come spewing straight up out of there. And sure enough, it's called the Devil's Punch Bowl. And you know, people say, the devil, you say, when they don't know if what you're saying is right or if it's shocking or alarming. The devil, you say. Or a man down on his luck is said to be, poor devil. Isn't that interesting? And we got devil's food cake. You know, everybody laughed when Flip Wilson used to say on his television show, the devil made me do it. And people like to laugh. But there is nothing funny about the devil. The devil is real. He is the embodiment of all evil. He is an evil, intelligent, perverted spirit who opposes all righteousness. He is called in the Bible the father of lies and deceit and the accuser of the brethren. God's Word says that every day, in some way or another, Satan the devil is accusing those who are trying to live according to God's way. The devil deceives, and God gives crystal clear truth and understanding. Satan the devil tempts, and God will never tempt a man and cannot be tempted with evil. The Satan the devil exploits, but God gently guides and leads and allows you to achieve to fullest capacity on the basis of your own ability. Satan the devil betrays, but God is faithful and sure, solid, true, enduring, dependable. Satan the devil appeals to human appetites, and God helps you control and use your appetites for good. Satan is a destroyer. He destroys. He is the master of chaos, of confusion, of caprice. But God saves, preserves, cherishes, protects, and is the author of order and of peace. Wherever you look in history, Satan the devil has been there, as I'll show you as we go along. Now, originally, a fallen archangel whose name was Lucifer, was a beautiful, wondrous cherub and was assigned the fabulous position as one of the honor guards right around God's own throne. I want to turn to and read that for you. It's found in Ezekiel 28, and we'll read through, oh, the verses from 12 to 17 and read portions of them. Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The workmanship of your tabrays and of your pipes was prepared in thee from the day you were created. You are the anointed cherub. I'll talk about that a little more in just a moment. What is a cherub? What does it look like? Have men ever seen them? Where was the very first time that a cherub was ever seen by human beings? You are the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled thee with violence, and you have sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now God shows that originally Lucifer, and that was his name, there are only three names given to the three archangels in the Bible, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And Lucifer was not a bad or an evil name. It merely meant light bringer or shining star of the dawn. And God says that originally that archangel was right there beside God's throne, but he became vain, corrupted, he attempted to overthrow God. Literally, the original Star Wars took place, and if you understand what that brought about, 
you would understand much more about why the moon and all of the planets, and for that matter, everything you can see in space looks like so much debris, and why there is lifelessness and destruction that is visible up there. Anciently, Lucifer was one of three archangels right about God's throne and had one-third of the countless millions of angels under his control in heaven. Read Revelation in the twelfth chapter, verses three and four. It says this, There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven. If you want to look at Revelation 1, 16, and 20, you will find that the Bible uses stars as an analogy of angels. A third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth, reference to that great battle that took place when Satan the devil and his demons were cast down to this earth. And it says the dragon stood before the woman, and that's a type of the church, reference to the Virgin Mary in shadowy type, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, several things are important here. First of all, notice Isaiah's reference to Satan in Isaiah 14. I'll read verses 12 and 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars, meaning all other angels, of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the clouds, showing that he was on this earth beneath the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, where was Satan the devil when God's creation, recreation, really, at the time of the creation of Adam, uh, took place? Well, it was right here on this earth. And we will see that in just a few moments. Where was he at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ? He was right there trying to kill Jesus Christ, as it says in Revelation 12, 3 and 4, standing before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born, reference to the murder of who knows how many tens of thousands of little children, boy children, babies, aged one day to two years of age during the time of Herod the Great. And why he's called the Great, I'll never know. Because he was one of the most vile, filthy, genocidal monsters that the world has ever spawned, right alongside the likes of Joseph Stalin and, and Adolf Hitler. Now, Lucifer was a created being, a great spirit being, given never-ending life as a spirit and originally assigned to a great position next to God's throne. But the Bible says he was so extremely beautiful that he somehow became corrupted by that beauty that somehow, in a way that we do not understand, a decision was made, maybe perhaps billions of years ago, and that decision will apparently remain firm for all eternity where Michael and Gabriel are concerned. Lucifer became vain, egotistical, desired to overthrow God, to steal God's position. He became possessed of that idea, and eventually... He attempted it with one-third of his angels whom he had influenced, and they followed him in a titanic battle beyond our human ability to imagine took place. Now, that was the real, original Star Wars. If you were to take a look any night with a ten-power pair of binoculars at the moon, take a look at uh, some of the pictures coming back from Voyager satellites and so on, at the poisoned Venusian atmosphere, at the lifeless, desolate surface of Mars and so on, you will see that the entire universe was wrecked. 
As we saw in Revelation, the twelfth chapter, Lucifer's angels fought against God and the other two archangels and all their hosts, and the result was that Lucifer was hurled back down to this earth. Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, and you can read this in Luke 10 and verse 17, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Christ was there as the one who is the creator of Genesis 1 and 2. And read, if you want to, to prove that to yourself, Hebrews, the first chapter, or the letter of the gospel, I should say, of John, John, the first chapter. Originally, the earth was a place of order, of beauty, and of harmony. In the beginning, God says in Genesis 1-1, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. The Hebrew is tohu and bohu. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That's Genesis 1-1. Now, when we first see creation week as it is unveiled to us in Genesis, the first chapter, we see a lifeless void of Stygian blackness, of nothing but tossing waves as far as the eye can see. Not a single continent or land mass is protruding above the oceans, and it maybe has continued this way for who knows how many billions of years. A side note, absolutely there is proof in geology that there have been many emergences and submergences or inundations of the continental land masses beneath the surface of the sea. There are many ways to prove that, not the least as which the deposition of sedimentary strata and in some of the highest mountains of the earth where you will see that at one time they were shallow seashores or seabeds, shallow enough to have all kinds of shell life that is found in the first few hundreds of feet of the ocean and not way down the abyssal depths like the Marianas Trench. And that Satan the devil, if you really follow that to its ultimate conclusion, with all of his demons, happened to be chained by the power of God to the Stygian blackness of this earth where there is no dry place. Now think about it for a minute. Jesus once said that when the demon is cast out of a man, he wanders around seeking dry places. It's interesting, isn't it? I sometimes wonder about this thing called hydrophobia and why it is that one of the most horrible of all diseases, rabies, causes a person who even thinks about water to just go absolutely foaming crazy mad. It makes me wonder about some of those things that probably will be unknown until Christ comes to inform us. But it does show that if the earth is about four and one half billion years of age, Satan the devil and his demons were actually here, a ruined world, a lifeless world, a continent submerged beneath the seas, utter Stygian blackness, thick clouds mantling the earth like a poisoned Venusian atmosphere, and Satan the devil doing nothing but wandering about, not even one ray of light penetrating it. Now let's take a look at the word was. In Genesis 1-1 it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. The word was is an erroneous translation in the King James language. Many Bible commentaries and a lot of other study helps make this very, very clear. As a matter of fact, in the fourth paragraph under the explanation of that verse in the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown Critical and Experimental Commentary is a very fine brief article on that subject that absolutely proves it. Here is what the biblical proof is like. If you look at Isaiah 45 and verse 18, it says very clearly, For thus says the Eternal that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he has established it, 
He created it not in vain. Now, the word in Genesis 1 and verse 1 and 2 is tohu. And here it is the same Hebrew word, tohu. And it says, he created it not tohu. Not empty, vain, void, waste, black, polluted, stygian blackness, empty, lifeless, so on. Not tohu. So it wasn't created that way originally, but it became that way. And it became that way at the time of Satan's rebellion, at the destruction of what once had been a beautiful, verdant earth, absolutely teeming with all kinds of life forms, probably all of the dinosaurs by the billions, and at that time, Billions of life form, forms were buried beneath the various rocks and gradually formed coal and oil and various other fossil fuel deposits for the later use of man. Now, the identical Hebrew word is used, so there is internal evidence which absolutely proves that the world was for some indeterminate period of time, and we don't know exactly how long, if science claims to believe that the world is approximately four and one-half billion years of age, the Bible has no quarrel with that because there is easily enough time that could have elapsed from the time of Satan's rebellion, the original destruction of the earth, until the time the continents were raised once again and the clouds parted when God said, let there be light and let the dry land appear. Perhaps it was four and one-half billion years. A strange occurrence, by the way, took place during the Noatian deluge, when once again Satan the devil had so corrupted and polluted the earth that all of mankind was involved in every heinous form of sin and crime you can imagine, not only homosexuality and bestiality, but even cannibalism. God says he looked, and behold, there was nothing but violence continually on the earth at that time. And there are billions of cubic yards of absolute proof that there was a universal deluge, this side of creation, during the time of Noah. Now, a very strange occurrence took place during that Noatian flood. I want to read in Jude and verse 6, because this is one of the most oft-misunderstood parts of the Bible. It said, And the angels which kept not their first estate, and that means an area of angelic domain or a principality, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Now, this is referring to demons who were once righteous angels, but who followed Satan the devil in his rebellion against God, and who were now chained by the power of God to this earth. Notice what it says happened. This is in Second Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, meaning Tartaru in the Greek, I'll come back and explain that, cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Then it goes on to say God knows how to, to preserve, and so on. And I want to get this one portion of it. It says, If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell. Now, the Greek word is Tartaru. There are three Greek words used in the Bible that are translated into the English word hell that comes from an old Norwegian and a, an Anglo-Saxon word that was either Behalian, B-E-H-E-L-I-A-N, or H-E-L, hell, and was supposed to have been a goddess of the underworld of darkness of the dead. And that is a mistranslation of the Greek word Hades. The Greek word Hades is the one used most often throughout the Bible for 
the word that we read in English, hell. And the misconceptions that are extant in the so-called Christian world as a result of that are legion, believe me. Because the word Hades has nothing whatsoever to do with infernal regions, or with heat or temperature, or something that is hot or fiery. In other words, a flaming, burning hell. It has no more connection than water does to fire. It is just that far distant and absolutely not connected whatsoever. The word Hades means simply the grave. It merely means a graveyard. And a grave, of course, is a cold, dank, dark place for the burying of a completely dead body that is now decaying and returning to the dust of the earth from which it came. It has nothing whatsoever to do with fires. Now, this word Tartaru is used only one place in the Bible. The other word that is used here and there, especially by Christ in the New Testament, having to do with the coming destruction of the earth by fire and having to do with a garbage dump that existed in Jerusalem anciently, is the word that was really a derivation of a family name of a family called Hinnom that had originally bought a deep crevasse or a valley, and there was quite a cliff there right on the edge of a part of the environs of Jerusalem that led down into it. It became a garbage dump. And just like many small northern and American, midwestern and Pacific northwestern towns over decades ago, it's not allowed usually anymore because of pollution. There will be a garbage dump. I remember years ago, we used to go in a little town called Orr, Minnesota. We'd go out there to watch the bears because people would take their garbage bags and the regular garbage trucks would run from all the resorts and from the small community, and they would dump their garbage there. And once in a while, a bulldozer would come out and kind of doze it all off into a corner somewhere, but people would set fire to it. And the stench was terrible. But bears would be attracted to it, and it was quite a place, almost like your own private zoo, if you could stand the stench, to go out there in an evening with your car windows up, if you could stand it, uh, with the air conditioning running, or if you, if the wind was going the right way, maybe you could put the windows down and you could look at the bears. And there would be six, eight, ten of them. I've seen some huge bears out there cluttering around, licking the cans and trying to find something to eat through looking through a human garbage dump. Well, you know, in ancient times, they didn't even begin to have the kind of sanitation they have today. So that garbage dump in the Valley of Hinnom featured perennial fires. It was always smoking and smoldering, and every time they would add on a daily basis trash, perhaps boards or old lumber, sometimes the bodies of dead animals like dogs or rats or what have you, and believe it or not, when a criminal was stoned to death, that body was not buried oftentimes if he would be, had been guilty of a particularly heinous crime of some sort and was actually cast over into that garbage dump with its smoldering, burning fires. And the body would partially decompose and would gradually then be charred and burnt up by the fires. Now, when Jesus said that Gehenna fire will be the result and the ultimate reward of sin for someone who commits the unpardonable sin, for example. People during that day knew exactly what he is talking of, what he was talking about. It would be exactly like if Jesus Christ of Nazareth had been in Orr, Minnesota, and he said to people in Orr, Minnesota, I tell you those who sin are going to be thrown on the local garbage dump and burnt up. They would say, oh, what a horrible fate. They would know exactly what he is talking about. So the Greek word Gehenna, really refers to the valley of the sons of Hinnom, and it was a local term 
entirely an indigenous term that Jesus Christ used to picture final destruction of the wicked by fire. Now, Christ talked about the destruction of the body, not singeing it for all eternity, but the complete burning up and the destruction of the body, not an ever-burning fire at all. Remember, then, you have the three words, and if you want to get my brochure on the subject of an ever-burning hell, it will go through it in far greater detail than I've got time here, and it will show you all those words and where to find many of them and show you the entire subject. But there are three Greek words. The one that is used in the main many, many times is Hades. The exact transliteration of that in Hebrew that is used in the Old Testament is the word Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It means the very same thing Hades does. It really means the grave. Now, the second most popular or oft-used word in the New Testament is Gehenna. And the other word that we have here is used only one time, and it is Tartaru. Unfortunately, they translated it hell, and that's terribly misleading. Let's go back to the text again and get our bearings and see where we are. It said, If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to a place called Tartaru. Now, that means this. It means a condition of restraint. It means a place of confinement or containment. It goes on to say, And delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So they were cast down to some place that was dark. And spiritually, because we're dealing with spirit beings, they were, quote, chained, end quote, and are, quote, reserved, end quote, unto judgment. Now it also says, and if God spared not the old world, and that means the pre-flood world of the patriarchs, but saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, etc., now, when Satan was cast out of heaven with one-third of the, all, all the angels, it was following a titanic clash of super-powerful spirit beings, a climactic battle of intergalactic space. He and his angels that were now demonic and uh, perverted like he was were chained by God's command to this wrecked, lifeless, water-covered, Stygian black earth. And then, countless thousands of years later, and spirit beings have minds, not, not a human brain, but I mean they are intelligent. And when an angel appears, it appears exactly as a man, as we see time and again in the Bible. So they were certainly aware of the passage of time. And here they had to spend countless thousands of years, perhaps four billion and a half years, being chained underneath those black clouds, seeing nothing but tossing waves with no human around until the time of creation week. And then instantly, as we shall see, Satan attempted to wreck this new creation and once again tried to thwart God's plan. First, Satan the devil tried to wreck the creation by causing the so-called fall of man. And, of course, in that succeeding few generations, he caused men to become completely perverted, caused them to become engaged in every conceivable kind of evil, murder, bestial behavior, homosexuality, you name it, including cannibalism, as I said. And God found but one man who was righteous before him, and that was Noah. God proposed to destroy all mankind, now wholly corrupted by Satan, except for Noah and his family, by a massive flood. And then as the whole world was once again inundated with water, and while Noah and his family were being protected of God, a strange thing occurred. Christ himself, 
the member of the Godhead who did the creating, and remember, you ought to check up on John 1, 1 to 14, Hebrews 1, 1 to 14, and prove that to yourself, because the one who is called the God of the Old Testament, the one who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger, who parted the Red Sea, who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, who dealt with Abraham, who wrestled in the dust of the earth with Jacob, is the one who became Jesus Christ. Christ himself, the creator of the Old Testament, came down to this earth and gave Satan a powerful witness, and his demons a powerful witness, during the flood, believe it or not. And that is what we are really reading in Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5. Notice what it says in 1 Peter 4, 18 to 20. Quote, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened, that means made alive, by the Spirit, by which... That means through which agency, meaning by the power of the Spirit, by means of which, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, remember what we read about the spirits who were cast down, who had left their own habitation, reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day, nothing less than the demons who were chained to the heaving surface of this earth's waters for perhaps four and one-half billion years prior to the creation of Adam, now comes the complete destruction of the earth once again by water, the second time, and Christ is there on the spot, as it says in a moment, we'll show exactly when that occurred, in a place called Tartaru, meaning this earth where they were chained, or in other words, this area of this earth, which is their place of chains of darkness, or their place of reservation under judgment, Tartaru, a place of restraint, or as it says, in prison. So they're called the so-called spirits in prison. People have pondered and wondered for decades, and perhaps millennia, what does that mean? All you've got to do is to put those three scriptures together, to go back and understand about Satan's original rebellion, to understand the condition of the earth prior to the emergence of the continents in creation week, and then you understand what occurred during the time of Noah. It says, Christ being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, meaning this earth where they were chained, which sometime were disobedient. When were they disobedient? Well, the sometime they were disobedient is long before, perhaps literally billions of years before, when Satan himself was cast down. Now, when did Christ do this? Read the rest of the verse. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah? Notice the rest of the verse. While the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So during the period when Noah was preparing the ark for the survival of his family and therefore the preservation of the human race, Christ came down to this earth in spirit, gave powerful witness against Satan and his demons, testifying to the great watery destruction that was soon coming, perhaps reminding them of the interminable time during which they wandered to and fro over heaving waves that covered this earth, and warning them about the horrifying fate that eventually awaits them. Jude 12 and 14 gives you a little bit of a clue about what that might be, talking about Satan and his demons and some men who were like types of those. Jude wrote, these are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are, without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars. And remember, the Bible uses stars as symbols of angels in many places. Look at Revelation 1 and verse 20. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. 
That is a powerful clue about Satan's ultimate fate. Even as Satan and his demons had already had a taste of countless thousands of years of enduring nothing but storm-tossed waves and inky blackness with no human being around, so Christ may have powerfully reminded them of that fact, predicted their ultimate fate, to wander about like wandering stars to whom is reserved nothing but inky blackness for all eternity. Now, believe it or not, the traditional mythological concepts of Satan's appearance are like everything else the devil has concocted, nothing but a pack of lies. If you turn to Genesis 3 and verse 1, you read, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. Why is it called a beast? The Hebrew word nakash should not be rendered serpent. It is an error. The Hebrew word nakash has nothing to do with a snake. The Hebrew word nakash merely means whispering enchanter. It actually carries the connotation of sound of a whispering, enchanting, magnetic appearance and has nothing to do with whether or not there are arms or legs or a body of any length or any kind of physiognomy whatsoever. And if you will write for my brochure on the subject of Satan's greatest deception, you will see that proved in very great and technical detail. He said to the woman, whatever it was that spoke to the woman, said, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat every tree of the garden? Now here Satan began subtly implying that God was unfair. He began putting into Eve's mind the thought that God would have denied them anything to eat. In her beguiled innocence, she thought she'd better reason with this strange-looking creature. So the woman said to this nakash, this whispering enchanter, Well, we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And that was the knowledge, or the tree, rather, that symbolized the knowledge of good and evil. Was it a real tree? Well, the Bible says it was. The idea that it was an apple and that uh, perhaps the first sin was a sex experience and so on is all absolute nonsense. The idea that the part of a man's throat that protrudes is an Adam's apple that's stuck in his throat is also nonsense. But notice what Satan implied. He contradicted God. He said, You will not surely die, because God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God's, knowing good from evil. So Satan implied that God was withholding vital knowledge. In other words, God was deceiving Eve, and only telling Adam and Eve a part of the truth. And then he began to hold out, Well, you want to be knowledgeable like God is. You want information that God is holding back. I mean, I've got a secret here. You want to discover this secret. Here is something really interesting. He appealed to Eve's vanity, told her she was just as good as God, and had a right to be equal with God, and said, you'll be like God is, knowing good and evil. He also appealed to her sense of inferiority and insecurity, making her think God was unfair to withhold something from her which was beautiful and to be desired. And he promised her, really, a better life than she presently had. Eye-opening knowledge, superior intellect and wisdom. Why, she was going to get the real inside information, the straight dope, coming to understand the whole scene. And she could have it right now. Instant gratification. No waiting, no months or years of work before the payoff. She could have it right now. He said, in the day you eat thereof. So what happened? Well, Genesis 3, 6 says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was ple pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she, of course, took it and gave it to her husband, and the two of them ate, and eventually they were expelled from the garden. They went from a condition of neutrality to hostility and began to suffer guilt, which is a horribly uncomfortable feeling. Now, what did Adam and Eve actually see? 
To understand, remember, we were talking about the fact that Lucifer had been a cherub that stood right around God's throne. If you read Ezekiel 1 about that strange apparatus that had cherubim and the wheels within wheels that transported the God of Israel, who is the creator of the Old Testament, the one who became Christ, about the universe, you will see a fantastic vision that included the four visages of cherubim, which is merely the plural of cherub. And they are that of a man, a lion, an eagle, and an ox. If you were to look into ancient civilizations, the four visages of cherubim are seen throughout them in art, literature, and the monuments. The famous winged bulls of Sargon's and Ashurbanipal's and Ashurnazarpal's palaces in Assyria had similar representations of ox-like creatures that featured a man's head, eagle's wings, lion's claws and tail, and they adorned palaces and walls in ancient Babylon, Assyria, in Sumeria and Akkad, in Egypt, and many other nations. Calf worship continued throughout much of the Middle and the Far East, and believe it or not, is extant today in the second largest nation on the face of the earth. It is still very, very popular. More than 550 million Hindus in India believe the cow is sacred, like a domesticated ox. And what is the sphinx that they're trying to restore that is supposed to be guarding the tombs of the pharaohs but a man-headed lion? Now, anciently, this nakash, which is merely a Hebrew word that meant some kind of a subtle, charming, hissing deceiver. And because it says in Revelation 12 and verse 9 that that old serpent called the devil and Satan is cast out and so on, the translators thought they should use the word serpent. But the Bible says that the one who became Satan the devil was one of the covering cherub, or one of the cherubim. So it is true that God cursed the serpent, and that there is some possibility that the seraph of the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah, which is a winged flying creature, was one of the visages or one of the ways in which Satan could have appeared, what possibly stood in front of Adam and Eve might have been something akin to a dragon, like a serpentine form that actually stood upright. It could have had legs, four of them, could have had wings, could have had the head of an ox or an eagle or a man or a lion, could have appeared in any one of those ways. And the connection in mythology, the connection in Central and South America, the Yucatan Peninsula, in India, in Indonesia and Malaysia, in Japan and in China, where the dragon and the serpent is worshipped, and in Quetzalcoatl, the bizarre forms of religion in some of those societies where we see snakes' heads protruding out of some of the pyramids in Mexico, and that millions were involved down through literally thousands of years in dragon or in serpent worship, in calf worship, in the worship of man-headed lions, in men with eagles' heads, in all kinds of representations of these cherubim. Is it any wonder, then, that when you see the signs of the zodiac, all the paraphernalia associated with Halloween and with some of the so-called holidays of professing Christianity, that you see nothing more than an outstanding example of how an apostate church adapted satanic pagan rituals, dressed them up in Christian clothing as a counterfeit, palmed them off on the professing Christian church, and today... Millions of people, with great glee and excitement, go out on an evening called Halloween to a party, 
and think there is absolutely nothing to dressing up like a ghost, a goblin, a demon, or the really deceptive or lying appearance, is what it really is, of Satan the devil himself, of having all the accoutrements, witches, black cats, the colors of the harvest moon and of midnight, and calling it Christian when actually it is pagan to the core. Now, the greatest deception of all is, of course, that many people are trying to worship Satan the devil in his visage or his image, which is absolutely a false masquerade of the portraying of the devil of the artist's drawing board, of the weird-looking character with a spade beard and little horns and a pitchfork or a trident in his hand with a long snake-like tail with a spear on the end of it, because that isn't the way Satan appears. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 it says this, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And it said in verse 3, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and it should be in the aorist tense, or the present progressive, being lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Satan is called the God of this world. Now, how does he appear? Over in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So what does the Bible say? Satan appears Christ-like. And sure enough, when you read of the image of the beast that has two horns like a lamb, but speaks as a dragon, you will actually see that Satan the devil comes today through many, many ministers in the name of Christ and says, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and so on, and actually is influencing the false and the pagan doctrines and practices of much of so-called Christianity. The Bible says very clearly, no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Satan the devil is the one who is really subtly being worshipped at Halloween. And Satan the devil is the one who is subtly being worshipped with completely different trappings and for different excuses and reasons at the time it is called Christ Mass. Question. Since Hallow Mass is a Catholic perversion of a pagan druidic ceremony, why are many of you who like to call yourselves Protestants observing it? Now, if there is a God, it makes a great deal of difference. If there is no God, it makes no difference what people do because there is no judgment. But Almighty God says, learn not the way of the heathen. And the point is, Halloween and all the other pagan holidays are pagan to the rotten core, and Almighty God wants us instead to observe His righteous, good, and beautifully illustrative annual holy days which seasonally reveal to us the great purpose, program, and the plan that Almighty God is working out here below.